Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Life isn't an easy road to navigate. We're moody creatures, susceptible to an array of psychological setbacks, emotional ups and downs, fruitless searches for meaning, and trials posed by anxiety, depression, and despair. The kind of journey one needs a survival guide for, and my guest today says, one of the best can be found in the writings of existential philosophers. His name is Gordon Marino. He's a football and boxing coach, a professor of philosophy, and the author of The Existentialist Survival Guide, How to Live Authentically in an Inauthentic Age. Gordon and I begin our conversation with how he personally found existentialism and how his coaching intersects with his teaching. We then get into what existential philosophy is all about and the thinkers and authors who are considered to be existentialists. Gordon shares what he thinks is the greatest existential novel and which of Soren Kierkegaard's books he most recommends reading. From there, we delve into what Kierkegaard had to say about anxiety, how he thought existential angst was the ultimate teacher, the distinction he drew between depression and despair, and why he argues that procrastination is one of our greatest moral dangers. We then unpack the different models of living an authentic life that the existentialist espoused and what Nietzsche meant with his injunction to live dangerously. We then get into what the existentialist take on love is, why love is actually hard to accept, and why you should presuppose love in others, and we end our conversation with what boxing can teach about existential philosophy. After the show's over, make sure to check out our show notes at aom.is existential. All right. All right. Gordon Marino, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Been looking forward to it. Yeah. So you are a professor of philosophy at St. Olaf College. You're the author of the book, The Existentialist Survival Guide, How to Live Authentically in an Inauthentic Age. Let's talk about your backstory of how you became a professor of existential philosophy. How did you discover existential philosophy? And just tell us about that. I think I think it's really interesting. Well, I was a football player at Bowling Green State University, and I had this wonderful, wonderful professor in a philosophy class. And he told me, well, you know you know about elite athletics and stuff like that, but you need to get some elite training in the mind. And so I transferred to Columbia University. And uh, he was just, his name was Serge Kapler, a huge influence. So there, 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 I studied philosophy there. And it was later on that I got into, uh, to, well, it was during a time when I was, went through a, a terrible divorce as a young man, a very hard time. And I was in a coffee shop and picked up this book of Kierkegaard's and it was like a light. It's just a beautiful, amazing page because uh, one of the things I was having such a hard time and one of the things I found was that Kierkegaard and other existentialists really addressed the impediments in our, our lives, our inner lives, and uh, the, the difficulties we face in being decent people. I mean, it's really, it's easy to be a good person when everything's going well, but quite different when you hit the, when the, when the lights turn red. Right. It's, it's easy in theory, but when you actually have to, to do it, it gets a lot harder. And you're also a boxing coach at St. Olaf. What's well, your- I'm not at St. Olaf. I'm, I'm a yeah, professional boxing coach and a trainer and a, and a an, uh, USA boxing coach. So I've trained both amateurs and pros in uh, over 30 years, mostly kids in town, although I've had a couple of boxers from St. Olaf. And, and how has that influenced your thinking about philosophy, boxing? Well, the teaching and coaching really influence one another, really go together in an important way. The, uh, being a coach helps me be a better teacher, helps me read kids in more accurately, know who to push, when to push, that kind of thing. And and it's really, uh, I coach also coach football here. And I found that you really get the landscape of a, when you have a, when, when you have somebody in class and in the and in, in, in the gym and or the football field, you really get to see the landscape of their mind in a way that you wouldn't have otherwise. And it's a, uh, Really remarkable because uh, some kids, uh, if I if I hadn't had them on the football field, I wouldn't have 
they wouldn't have opened up and I wouldn't have known how rich their thinking was. So it's been, it's been marvelous like that. Now, of course, I get a lot of questions of uh, how can you train these people's brains and at the same time get them bashed in and stuff like that. So I get a lot of, get a lot of jabs about that over the years, less so yeah. now, but in the beginning. Yeah. Well, what do you, th- I mean, how do you, what do you respond to that? I'm very, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm very careful with, with my, with my boxers and, uh, I've never had anybody get hurt or close to it. So I, I don't think people understand that if you, if it's well supervised boxing, it'd be quite safe. Right. And I mean, we've had Mark Edmondson on the podcast. Oh, yeah. Professor, sure. yeah, at Virginia. University of Virginia. Yeah. Right and, and, and yeah, he wrote that book, Why Football Matters. And yeah. I thought, I mean, he, he answers that too, that sort of question like, how can you, you know, be in favor yeah. of a sport that where people get, you know, traumatic brain injury or whatever? And, you know, it's, it's a tough one, but he, he still thinks there's value in the sport because it can teach you something about life that you can't otherwise learn in the classroom. Right. And there's also a risk in living a risk-averse life. That's something you learn from Kierkegaard. It's very important. One of his main ideas is that to not to venture, not to risk, is to take one of the greatest risks in life. So Right. Well, that's a good transition, you know, sport as a, a way to transition to existential philosophy but let's start with this like what is existentialism for those who aren't familiar with it you know what philosophical questions are they the existential philosophers primarily concerned with well there's they're they're a real motley crew and they're joined more by themes than by any kind of general theory so uh, the themes are very much things like the individual there's a limits of rationality limits of the idea of clarity being concrete in your thinking, right? I'm relating your thought to your existence, not not being too abstract. Again, dealing with addressing painful emotions like despair, depression, anxiety, the issue of freedom, choice. Those are some of the themes that link. And every everybody has a different roster. Who's on the Who's on the roster? Some people have Shakespeare on there, you know. So it's a quite a quite a quite a array of um, a lack of agreement about who's really an existentialist. And actually, only only Camus and maybe Marcel and Simone de Beauvoir ever really identified themselves. I'm sorry, Sartre, not not Camus. Camus denied he was an existentialist. But there's only two or three people that ever identified themselves as such, and only for a short time. But I identify myself as an existentialist. Right. Well, you said there's a motley crew. I mean, not only are there philosophers, but they, there's also you lump in people lump in novelists oh, in yeah. there as well. So Kafka. yeah, let's talk about some, right. yeah. Let's like who are some of the big names that people get usually thrown around as existentialists? Oh, okay. So so certainly Kierkegaard, Sartre, Nietzsche, Camus. Those are those are some of the main ones. Simone de Beauvoir. Okay. In terms of novelists, we have Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Miguel de Unamuno. Those are some of the people who read. In fact, everybody should read Tolstoy's The Death of Ivan Illich. It's the greatest existential novel ever. Unbelievable. Amazing book. I've, I've also heard like, you know, Thoreau and Emerson thrown in there as well every now and then. Yeah, there's connections, I think, there. Yeah, I mean, uh, Nietzsche carried around. It was There's a book that uh, argues that, uh, that European philosophy was very much influenced by American philosophy in the sense that Nietzsche always carried around a copy of Emerson. You know, and uh, so yeah, there, there's some overlapping themes. I mean, how how does existentialist like? So it kind of started coming to. I mean, the first existential philosopher was Kierkegaard. That's sort of how people point to him. That's as how that. many people, that's right? Many people but like, how does how does existentialism differ from philosophy before existentialism? Like, what's the big difference? Oh, okay, one of the big differences is that uh, this understanding of the lack of limits of reason, right? So for Kierkegaard to become mature is to understand that there's a lot of things beyond our understanding that are important to life. So an, another thing is this idea of 
making your ideals concrete. So he thinks a lot of people, there's a lot of talk about, say, social justice or whatever. And then you have to ask yourself, well, what really have I done to advance that at all? Have I done anything? Have I, have I walked the talk to use a cliche? You know, and so there's a lot of emphasis on that, on action that you don't find in other philosophies. And I mean, also it seems like existentialism is somewhat, it's psychological too. Yeah. Like, as you said, I think Kierkegaard said, like the idea of the self, like what is the self? And it's like the self is the self relating to itself or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that, that's something like that. But that's from the opening page of uh, The Sickness on Death, which I think is his greatest book. So if, you're, if your listeners are interested in one book of Kierkegaard's, I would certainly recommend The uh, Sickness on Death. And, and in that book, I really found this distinction in him between uh, despair and depression, between a spiritual disorder and a psychological disorder. But for Kierkegaard, we're born with a, a self that we need to become. For him, it's a, we're, we're born a child of God, that we need to be loving, nurturing human beings, faithful. And uh, with my students, a lot of time, I, I really press them to think not just about what they want to do, which they're kind of obsessed with, but what kind of human being do you want to be? What kind of, what kind of person do you want to be? And there's a lot of that emphasis in, in Kierkegaard. Well, let's talk about some of the questions you tackle in the existential survival guide that you think existentialism, you know, these are big life questions mm-hmm. that you think the existentialists have some, not, not maybe not answers, but like, you know, questions to help you start thinking about this stuff. And the one question that existentialists grapple with is anxiety. Because yeah. I think everyone here who's listening to the podcast probably heard this or used the phrase, you know, existential angst. Right. And the existential philosopher who really explored this idea the most of existential anxiety was Kierkegaard. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about what did what did what is existential angst and how does that differ from anxiety about, you know, a test that you're taking in college? Right. Right. Well, existential angst, the way it's used today, it means it's a kind of a threat to our existence, right? That's the, that's the notion. But one of, the, one of the things with Kierkegaard was that uh, he insisted that the fact that we're anxious, anxiety is, in, is in, a, in, in a sense, our kind of visceral understanding of the fact that we're free. It's a, it's a, it's a blessing to be anxious, right? And it's, it's not a symptom of an, of an illness. It's, not a, it's something that marks us out of spirits itself because we're free. And it's in anxiety that you understand that you're free. And he thinks anxiety is one of the greatest greatest teachers. It's contrary to what a lot of people in the medical profession would say, that we need to be able to sit with anxiety. And today we have so so little patience for that. It's just a symptom, get rid of it, this kind of thing. And uh, so it's quite a different view between Kiergaard and the medical establishment on, on that issue. And didn't he say something that also like the, the human beings are unique in the in the world, that we're we're the combination of the infinite and the finite. That's right. Yeah, you got it. You got it. You're going to, you're going to get an A in the course. Yeah, definitely. Right. Yeah, right. yeah. That we're, we had these. Um, he thought this is what you're looking at. You're you're referring again to sickness on a death, and there he says we're, we we have these different aspects of ourselves: finitude, infinitude, uh, temporality, eternity, possibility, and necessity. These are contradictory kind of aspects of our of our lives, and as human being, we need to we have to be able to relate those things to one another, to be able to get some balance to integrate them. Right, and so I mean that's hard to integrate the infinite with the finite, and that it's, it's something like I don't is it I would, did Kierkegaard think it'd ever be resolved? No, one of the things one of Kierkegaard's main messages is, is that life is an ongoing process, so you can never so for people who say, well, I've been saved, it's all over, he'd say that's baloney, that's bull, you know, you know, that it's always life is always a struggle. You always have to to battle against certain temptations or whatever, right? There's no there's no end to it, right? Right, so it's it's a process. He's very adamant about that. 
And then at any moment, you could lose it. I mean, uh, so he talks about, he has this one story in the book that you've looked at, uh, Sick Design of Death, about a, a monk from India who's lived on do his whole life. He comes into the city, has one drink, and becomes, a, becomes an alcoholic. So that's what, our, that's what our situation is. We're that vulnerable. We're that fragile. We need to remember that. And it, so, I mean, it sounds like for Kierkegaard, like anxiety can, can teach you yeah, I mean, like, it, it would if you didn't feel anxiety, would Kierkegaard say something's wrong with you? Oh, yeah, he'd say you were spiritless. He literally says that in, in uh, the concept of anxiety, right? That, to, that it's, it's a mark that we're spirits, right? And that we want to do, a, and the anxiety is really about this, our spiritual potential. And he would say that what many of us do is concretize our anxiety, uh, uh, kind of finitize it in terms of, I'm afraid I won't get this job, or I'm afraid of doing this interview, or doing this, or doing that, right? We we try to turn our anxiety into these finite fears to escape it, right? That's that's one of his views. It's kind of a defense mechanism against the anxiety, but the anxiety is really about, we have the potential to become human beings, full persons for him, which again, for him means being a person of faith, but if faith, the idea of faith is offensive to you, it me- would mean Look, your main task in life is not to sit on the beach, not to not to accrue, uh, build your resume up, but to be a decent human being. Yeah, and, and that idea of uh, being spiritless, if you don't have anxiety, like, reminds me of Nietzsche's like the last man, right? Yeah, like, oh yeah, that's a good connection. Very good connection, yeah. Yeah, it's funny because um, Nietzsche did re- read some Kierkegaard late in the 1880s, apparently, and they disagree on a lot. But there's, they both agree that nihilism is this, this, this sense that nothing matters is the greatest danger. And for the last man, he just wants to, the last man is just concerned about when's my vacation, divides your life into work time and play time and, you know, what's on Netflix tonight. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, the last man is like, I've heard it described as, I forgot the name of the guy who's like the Nietzsche expert. He died, Solomon. Uh-huh. Yeah, he he described the last man as the ultimate couch potato. That's right. That's a good description. Yeah, he was very Solomon was very good. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's a, that's a really good description of the good couch potato. Yeah, just yeah. watches Netflix and just blinks. That's that's all. That's all life is. Okay, so we we talked about anxiety, and I guess Kierkegaard doesn't have much of a solution. Just kind of sit with it, learn what the anxiety what can mean? teach you. With you, that's right. It's not a, there's no so the solution. Yeah, the solution would be to sit with it and not finitize it. Not because he thinks it's dangerous. He says it can lead to suicide. So in that sense, you recognize it can be very dangerous. But yeah, to, to sit with it and not to translate it into what, what I'm really anxious about is whether or not uh, you know I get into med school or this or that, right? right? And it's okay to be anxious about those things, but that's not the that shouldn't become your sense of identity. So can can I make a little turn here? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So for him, I, I think there's there's three. Uh, this is where we can get into this distinction for him between despair and depression. For him, it's basically three selves. You have a concrete self, right? Right, the self you are, and then you have this ideal self, and then there's this self you were born to be, this child of God, right? So when this concrete self doesn't become its ideal self, you might get all your anxiety, all your fears, or am I going to get get into med school or whatever, right? He says, when the concrete self doesn't get to be its ideal self, it can't stand, it wants to get rid of itself. It can't stand being, being itself, right? It, it's kind of a, kind of a self, self-hatred. And, um, and he also says that for the person who, who does become successful, so that, that's despair. Despair is wanting to be rid of yourself. Got it? Got it. Okay. Right. And it sounds this this kind of despair sounds a lot like depression. Okay, but he also says the person who realizes the dream is 
equally endangered because they become the big shot or whatever, right? And they don't think about, look, I'm real. Uh, this is uh, whether or not I'm you know, head of the rotary or all kinds of whatever stuff. You know that that does that's not the aim in life. It's it's to become this a certain kind of human being. He says they're also in despair, even though they don't feel bad. So for Kierkegaard, despair is not a feeling. It's a um, state of the self, of being unaware of being a self and, and or being unwilling to be a self, whereas depression is this kind of self-hatred. And I, and I think we've lost that distinction. Right. So, yeah, with depression today, like it's, we've medicalized it. Like every right. time you feel sad, like we'd be like, well, here, I mean, even like grief, like here, take this, yeah. this antidepressant, you'll feel better. And Kierkegaard would say, would say maybe don't maybe don't do that. That's not not maybe that's not healthy. Yeah, learn to learn to sit with. And I don't think he'd be against all medications. I mean, and there's times when we are just when they can really rob us of our sense. Of, you know, life can rob us of our sense of agency at some point. But we've gotten to the point where we have a very low threshold for dealing with anxiety and being able to sit with our feelings, sit with bad feelings. And I think that that's that's been that, that's been lost. You know, I think we need to really work at that. You know, in our society, yeah, as you said, I mean, sometimes they'll, when people are dying, doctors will prescribe serotonin uptake drugs or antidepressants to the family as a kind of prophylactic against grief, right? So we've taken human predicaments that are, you know, that are going to hit us all and turn them into pathologies, illnesses. Right. And I think Kierkegaard would take great issue with that. And this idea, this distinction between depression and despair, like there's people, Kierkegaard was a depressive, and, you know, you, you quote these yeah. lines where he like, he, you know, he's at the party, oh, yeah. he was witty. And then when he came home, he wanted to kill himself. Right. And he write that in his journal. But right. he said, it's normal to feel down like that. The, the, the thing you got to be careful of, like you said, you can't let that depression fall into despair. Okay. But despair here would not be like, uh, it would be giving up on the project uh, of, I mean, suppose you got some terrible disappointment and you said, I oh, screw it, man. I don't care anymore. And you give up on the project of being a good, faithful person, right? That's when despair comes in, not with the bad feelings, right? It's right. when you, you give, give up. up on being a self, give up on being a human being. Right. You know, so that, that's where I think the distinction between despair and depression comes in. You can, I mean, he said, so he acknowledged he was depressive, but he doesn't think he was in despair. And how do you, how do you know if you're in despair or not? Okay, that's a, that's a complicated question for him because you have to have the right concepts. So he says a lot of people in this world will uh, they'll experience a jolt, uh, you know, something terrible will happen, and they and they'll say they're in despair. Yeah, they're right, they're in despair, but they have the wrong concept. So <laughs> you know what I mean? So that they're right that they're in despair, but it's as though uh, they don't understand what despair really is. The real despair is they've given up on being a self. Right. Right. They just, uh, they just, you know, that's not a big, that's not an issue for them. So it'd be like, okay, let's, so the example of, I like the example of what, to explore this idea with the person who's doing well in life, who's happy, got a yeah. great job, great family, but they're still in despair, Kierkegaard said, because maybe they've given up on being that, that self, that true self. Yeah, maybe may, may, on the back. Right. The the, so they don't think of the, they don't really think who the true self is. They ask themselves, have I have I been a good faithful person? Right, that's really. And if every if you're rich and powerful, everybody's nobody nobody gives you any crap, right? Right. They just patch on the back, and you're, you know, you're able to give money away without making any sacrifices, and it's very very intoxicating. So, uh, uh, again, you could do that, and uh, you could be very successful and be very happy. He thought happy was happiness was really just a matter of you know we make a god term out of it for Kierkegaard. It was just a um, 
it was a lot, had a lot to do with luck, fortune, you know, and it was a passing kind of thing. And it shouldn't be the aim of our life. Self-fulfillment, happiness. Right. Our aim should be decent human beings. And, but even these like happy, successful people, they they might have those moments where they recognize, like they're lying in bed at night and they realize yeah. this is empty. This is not. Uh, so like they recognize the despair, but Kierkegaard would say, well, you you might have the wrong concept of it because what they probably end up doing is they just keep doing more of the same, right? They keep. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up. That's a good point because he um he recognizes that kind of a person where they have these glimmers of like, yeah, everyone thinks I'm really great, but <laughs> something's missing. And he says they, they generally go right back to sleep. They just jump into it again and try to forget those moments. He says that that's the ordinary tendency. But yeah, it's a good that's a good example of some some big CEO sitting in bed at night and he's placed on the beach or whatever, and he's thinking, well, you know, I'm very successful, but right, right. And the next day, he's back to work or she's back to work. And then would Kierkegaard say that as soon as you recognize that disconnect between who you are and who you should be, you got to act like you have to do something immediately or otherwise you'll just start rationalizing like, well, I got a mortgage to pay. I've got to do this thing. I got to do that. You know, it's, it's that's an excellent question because a lot of people ask about Kierkegaard's ethics. And I think his greatest contribution to ethics was this idea that uh, of our capacity for self-deception and we don't need more ethics classes or workshops, whatever. We need to hold on to truths that are going to lead us against our self-interest a lot of time, right? I think I bring it up in the book, uh, this case where, you know, I was going to tax resist because of our involvement in, in Nicaragua with the Contras. And a friend of mine told me who was down there was saying they were killing all the midwives, the, the Contras, right? And I was going, I'm going to tax resist, right? But at the same time, I was up for a finalist for a Fulbright. And someone says, well, you tax resist. And guess what's going to happen with a Fulbright? And I said to myself, well, yeah, I, bet, I think I better wait until later on in life. I can make a, more, a stronger stand. So he thought procrastination was one of our greatest moral dangers, as, you, as you're mentioning, right? Yeah, that you, if you think about it too long, you're going to convince yourself that the right way is the easy way. Right. And that's a very important insight. You know, I think really important insight that you can convince yourself that the right way is the easy way, when in fact, the right way is oftentimes going to lead you into a collision with the world. The example you just gave of your own personal experience of like, yeah. it, it reminded, that reminded me, we talked about Mark Edmondson not too long ago, uh-huh. but he had that great book, Self and Soul, uh-huh. where he explored, it's, it's, I think it's an existential book. He explores this idea. There's these two selves inside of you that are competing. Mm. And sometimes, you know, the soul part, which is sort of our higher conception, you know, that, that true self that Kierkegaard would say. Right. And there's oftentimes in life when those, like their self part, which is like, you know, our need for recognition, our need for money, whatever, yeah. that conflicts and you have to, you have to decide, you know, what is it you really want? That's right. That, well, yeah. Well, it's not, not so much what you really want. It's what you should do, right? What you should what, do. What's the right thing to do? Yeah, that, that's, that, that's true. And a lot of times, I mean, I think, I think in the course of history, uh, I've always mentioned that, you know, the family is treated as the core of all moral values, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of times, it's the biggest temptation to doing the right thing. For example, when lynchings used to, these thousands of lynchings that took place in America, there were people in those towns that hated them, disagreed with them, but you spoke out, you were gone. And then, then if you're in that situation where you're going to speak, want to speak out and you got kids, you say, well, you know, I got my family. What do you think Nelson Mandela? He had kids, you know? So sometimes the family can become a moral temptation, I think, to hide. Yeah, I'm sure that was the case in Nazi Germany, right? I'd, I'd resist, but... I have a family to take care of. Right. You know, 
Yeah, that's hard. It's a that's a tough one uh, to to do to think about. But it could also make life easy because then you're you're free from any kind of having to make some painful decisions too. We're gonna take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. And now back to the show. Well, uh, let's talk about another question that existentialists grappled with is the idea of authenticity. And everyone talks about authenticity these days. You think so? I don't care. I, I don't care. Well, they, they, but they talk about it, I don't think, in the way that existentialists, like, I mean, I, while, I guess, like, you know, a couple years ago, you'd see companies really, you know, talk about, we have authentic artisanal whatever. Oh, yeah, that's right? true. Right? Yeah. And, and yeah. I, but, companies but I, I, don't market anything. That right. That's right. Yeah, that's true. Or like, you know, people on you know, sort of self-help type yeah. people they're like you got to live your your true self true you know, self, living yeah. my my tr- i'm living my truth i got to be authentic and yeah, i think we yeah. have the existentialist to thank for you know this sort of i don't know this watered down version of authenticity but let, i mean let's talk about what did the existentialist think what it meant to be an authentic person well Kierkegaard didn't didn't talk about use that term very much although it's dragged out of uh, a lot uh, people find that in a um, so for him, it would, be to come, it would be to come to your true self. Okay. But I, I think there's someone like Nietzsche would have thought that to become authentic would be to, it was an act of self-creation, which is a, a lot of what people, I think, at some level think today, right? It's to not define yourself in terms of the crowd, to become what he calls the sovereign individual, you know? So there's this one, one notion of authenticity that might involve you have this true self, which you're born to become, right? And the other is, authenticity is creating yourself. And and so um, th- those are two different takes on it. But I think we also have to consider the possibility. Well, I mean, suppose you're a, you're a real jerk and you're you're authentic. I mean, so I, authenticity could be a bad thing if you're if you're an evil person, you know. So it's not wouldn't always be a good I said, it wouldn't always be a good thing in that sense. But but two different models there. Uh, do you have this uh, self you're born to be, or is it one of creating yourself to doing what you feel like really, you know, which is the one I think that's marketed most today, right? right. Follow your passions, that kind of stuff. I and mean, what would the existentialists think about? I mean, would they like the follow your passion thing? Would they, I guess, would some of them be on board with that or would they be like, or you? Yeah. Yeah. Some would, okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Again, they, they disagree on a lot. I mean, you have atheists that are existentialists. You have true believers like CERN, but, uh, yeah, Kierkegaard was very emphatic about the importance of passion, right? That that's for sure. But he wouldn't he wouldn't say that our destiny in life is to follow our passions. I mean, suppose I have a you know a passion for playing beach volleyball or something, and I'm able to do it. Well, I wasn't put here on earth to play beach volleyball, you know. Even though, I, right? I mean, so right. Uh, uh, he would say we have duties and things like that 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 are that are very important. Well, he would say like, I mean, I know Kierkegaard didn't say the word authentic, but he would say the, I mean, if we were to pull it out of him, like for him, the authentic self would be like, you know, a child of God or whatever. Or whatever. Um, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or a good, a good, I mean, for people who find talk of God blasphemy, <laughs> it would be, be a good person, being a good person, being that's what you were born to be. You weren't put here to hike all day or drive or ride your bike a thousand miles. You're here to help each other. We're here to help, hold hands and be together and help each other. And I like this idea, you know, I think Nietzsche, he uh, was saying for quoting the poet Pindar, become who you are. Yeah. Your, your task in life is to become who you are. And uh, I think it's an interesting concept because it's like, okay, you have to first you have to know who are you, like what, what is the you you're supposed to become? And then what does that process look like? 
Yeah, but I think for Nietzsche, it's an artistic process. Becoming who you are is not like, it's not like Kierkegaard, where you were born with a certain, you were born with you know, self before God or whatever, right? For Nietzsche, it's more uh, rise above the crowd, develop the discipline, don't, don't evaluate yourself in terms of the, you know, the market value or the herd, right? And it involves a lot of uh, self-discipline and everything. And so he talks about it as a sovereign individual, but it's more, it's much more of, a, of an act of creation for him. Gotcha. Right. Self-creation. And, and I think for, for Sartre as well, he thinks of it as like an artistic project. And I think Kierkegaard and Dostoevsky probably would disagree with that. You know? Right. But what do you think of authenticity? What, what, what are your thoughts on it? I don't know. Like it's one of those. So I've, who do you think I've about, read. Who, who, uh, who do you think are authentic people? Who have you said, man, that person's authentic? Man. So, I mean, I've, I've met a few people. Like, so I think Kierkegaard described this person, you know, going back to Kierkegaard's sort of Christian roots, like the person without guile. Yeah. I think like, so you too. Do, you, yeah. Like you interact with them and you know, they've got no other nothing agenda. Their They're yeah. just yeah. nothing up their right. sleeve. Right. I've interacted with a few people like yeah. that. And it's like really refreshing because it's just like, and don't you think you, you don't, and, and oh, at, home, at home in their skin in some way, at home in themselves without being, uh, without being arrogant or something like that. I, I associate right. that with, um, yeah, but you're right. Being a little in a, I think it's Nathaniel, the, the disciples meet the tree and Jesus says something like he's a person of no, no guile. Yeah. That, I, I, I agree with you. Yeah. Nothing up your sleeve. And I also like, I mean, the idea of when I've thought about the become who you are thing from Nietzsche. So it is an act of self-creation, but I think the way I've read it is that Nietzsche would recognize there are limitations to your creation, right? You have to sort of understand the limits of you, that you have. So like for me, example, I'm not particularly athletic. So like becoming an NBA or an NFL player, probably right. not in the books for me, but, <laughs> right. but there's other things that I could do yeah. with, with discipline and, and will that yeah. I could become who I am. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I think that I think that's right. He certainly wanted want us to re- encourage you to recognize your the necessity, the concreteness in your life. Yeah. Now, what? But I'm like Kierkegaard. He wouldn't have any normative kind of moral parameters on that. So, if you wanted to become, if you were like a Viking type person or a killer or something like that, and that's what your true passion worked at, I don't know what there is in nature that would say you can't do that. That that's wrong. <laughs> right. So he's he's kind of um. He he's doesn't have a lot of normative force there, right? But he has things to teach us about the moral life. I mean, in particular, not to be that much of our lives driven by resentment, envy, emotions like that. So I think he's, a, and, and even for people of faith, I think he's he's very uh, he's very refreshing and very insightful. Yeah, and to let things go, like uh, he and he read um, before he wrote the Genealogy of Morals, which is one of his greatest books. He read uh, Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground, and it's all about this capacity for self-laceration, for tearing ourselves apart. For Nietzsche, you recognize you did something wrong, you let it go. I mean, forget about it. I mean, you you try to change your ways, but you don't just chew yourself up about it, right? And he thinks there's a lot of that in our society, a tendency to what he calls bad conscience, to turn all aggressions inward. So he says, like, for example, to, to forgive someone is to just forget it, right? There's a lot of like, yeah, I'll forgive you because I need to move on in my life as, as though forgiveness were a form of therapy. It's not. He said, you need to forget it. Let it go. So that's that's an important moral insight on his part. Yeah, I guess Nietzsche would say the noble soul would do that. Like the noble, he would just, yeah. they'd forget it. But like the resentful, the person filled with resentment would hold that grudge 
forever. Yeah, even basically, that, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that's a beautiful, that's a refreshing insight the way he describes it. To, and he, but he says that even with respect to our own lives, right? Like, have you ever, I don't know, at the times when I just gone over, I can't believe I did such and such. Oh my God, man. You know, like stuff from 50 years ago, whatever. And it's like, let it go, man. Like, don't, don't last. He thinks this kind of self laceration is part of a, of part of what he calls a slavery bull, but that's, that's another story. And Camus would agree. I and mean, if you read Camus' The Fall, amazing book, right? This tendency towards self laceration. You know, speaking of Nietzsche's sort of ideas about, ethical and moral decision. One thing you taught, you kind of suss out from him is that Nietzsche is a, his, he has a call for people to live dangerously. What do you, what do you think he means by that? Well, to take risks, right? And so that's another, that, that's something, again, where Kiergaard and Nietzsche would compliment one another is that this willingness to take risks to venture, right? Which he thinks in our, our society is, uh, you know, you know, keep all their bases open. Uh, you know, we live, you know, very pragmatic. And he says, no, man, live dangerously, take chances. I yell out at my students when they won't speak up in class. I'll come on, live dangerously. Ask a damn question, will you? Right? I mean, they're like, you know, we're reading Nietzsche and they're afraid to raise their hand. You know, so <laughs> I say, come on, live dangerously. <laughs> Ask a question. We're not leaving until I get three questions, I'll say. But yeah, so this this willingness to take risks. Well, I love the story you give that was related to that. Um, you, know, so you talk about how around exam time, you get all these emails from your students asking like, what's going to be on the test? You know, is this answer, would this answer be right? And you find that to tell them is like, you guys just need to get a grip, right? Because like yeah. they're, they're concerned about, you know, I got to get the A so I can graduate and get the, the internship or whatever. They're thinking last man, they're being like last men, Nietzsche would say. And you would say, <laughs> yeah. You guys got to get a grip. Like, you know, you, you talked about, uh, you know, uh, it was like the anniversary of D-Day. And you're saying, that's right. there that's was 20-year-olds right. who were just, they were storming Normandy. Right. And you're worried about whether you're going to get an A on this test. That went over really big. Yeah, I said, hey, man, about this time in 1944, Eisenhower came out and said, a bunch of, most of you people won't be coming back tomorrow, baby. Most of you people won't be coming back. I said, that was something to be anxious about. Get it and get a grip. And, oh, man, that was, some people didn't like that talk. <laughs> right. But, I mean, I, I think... We, yeah, they, they they wanted to play it safe. Like they wanted to know what like the they wanted to fill in the box. But you would say Nietzsche would say like for a test about existentialisms, like Nietzsche would say, be bold, live dangerously, answer something that you know that's coming you know from yourself that creates something, even if the professor doesn't like it. Like he would say, just go for it. Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't say. <laughs> yes, I don't know. If I've, I've had some students go for it, miss. Yeah, right. yeah. Rather than leave the blank, but yeah, but but do your studying, but but don't be so don't be so scared scared of like. I mean, I've had students. I love students. Will, they'll, they'll freak out if they don't get an A and they get an A minus. I mean, that kind of stuff. They're just so frightened of not being successful. You know, of not. You know, this kind of obsession with their. You know whatever right? and, and, uh, as opposed to uh, they don't they don't a lot of, I mean academically what happens all the time is they won't take any risks so people will only take courses they know they can get a good grade in they won't study they'll come to a liberal arts college and, and won't and won't stretch themselves won't study things they w- w- wouldn't you know that aren't in their ballywick so yeah uh, but yeah, that's where the coaching comes in though when I when at times like that where I'm like get a grip stop the baby stuff will you Take a punch. Yeah, man. Yeah. You know, yeah. 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 And they'll come. Uh, yeah. 
So well, and, and going back to sort of Kierkegaard's idea of like you know he he's, he would agree with Nietzsche about this idea of you got to live dangerously for him. This kind of segues nicely to Kierkegaard's concept of faith. Mm-hmm. You know, for for Kierkegaard, faith was kind of a it was a scary thing. It was a dangerous thing for Kierkegaard. Yeah, I would disagree with Freud. Someone of Freud who says, uh, believe because we want protection. For, yeah, to stand before God, to, to realize, that's, that's terrifying for Kierkegaard. And to stand out from the crowd, he, th- he thinks it requires great imagination, right? Because, you know, this, he says to, to both, that faith is an offense to reason. It's a collision with the understanding. You know, so it's very, it's very scary. I mean, I never, right? I mean, like, I don't see any proof of Jesus and going around or anybody getting up from the grave in the lately, you know? So yeah, it's, it's very, it's, it's scary for him. Yeah. So, I mean, another, another you know, concept or an idea that existentialists grapple with is this idea of love. Yeah. How do they, I mean, obviously they, they had differing ideas about what love was or what it meant in life. What, what sort of kind of is a bird's eye view of what existentialists thought about love? For Kierkegaard, it was a, a passion, a duty, right? It involved a feeling, he has all these, it's a lot of different admissibles, but it's primarily a duty. We have a duty to, to love others, and that involves a lot of things like becoming blind to their sins and um, that kind of that that kind of a thing. Uh, I don't, I don't, Sartre doesn't write about it that much, but I found one of the most illuminating passages was from Dostoevsky in the Notes from Underground, where uh, he he thinks that we have a hard time accepting. I mean, it's so amazing to be uh, to be loved by someone who friggin' knows you, right? I mean, who knows what an ass, what a jerk you can be, right? I mean, that's just remarkable. I mean, it's, we all want to be loved for like being cool or you know our, our accomplishments, right? But uh, I, I've said this at weddings, like, but to be loved by someone who really knows you, good and bad qualities, is just Amazing. And um, Dostoevsky said we have a hard, because of the power dynamic, we don't want, the problem is a lot of time to accept being loved for who you are, right? It's not, we always think of love as, I want to get as much as I can, or I want people to love me. No, he says it's it's really one of um, of being able to accept love from someone who knew you. I, I had a, and I, I think, and, and he thinks that's the problem. That's one of the offensive things about Christianity is to, that Jesus knows us and, and loves us. And forgives us. And uh, there's nothing that makes, Dostoevsky thinks there's nothing that makes people more angry than to be told, I forgive you. Right? So we don't often think about the, the task of being able to accept love from people who know all our flaws. And I think that's a beautiful insight. Right? No, yeah. I mean, I mean, like this, I like this quote in the book that you have. He says, we need, we need the love of others to love ourselves but in order to be nurtured by the love of others, we need to love ourselves sufficiently to accept that love. Yeah, and that's why I think one of the issues today with issues about race and social justice, I mean, just, you know, all the boxers I train in Mexican immigrants, man, they get nothing but crap half the time. You know, everyone looked down on them like the invisible, right? That can affect your ability to love yourself. You know, we think we need to think of uh, racism and the social injustice as infecting people's ability to love themselves. Because a lot of times when you have that kind of social injustice, you also have economic things, things going on at home that are bad. There are kids, parents are always pissed off or split up. You go to school angry, you get nothing but crap from teachers, you know? And so it's, we, we, this, and I think Kierkegaard missed the boat on this one, the, that to truly love ourselves, it really helps to get love from others and not be treated as, dirt or invisible, which is how a great 
many human beings are treated. Well, Kierkegaard did say this thing. He talks that you need to presuppose love in others, that other people are capable mm, yeah, of love. Yeah, that's right. You've been doing your studying, man. Yeah, well, that's impressive. Yeah, that's right. To And I, I think there he's saying this is hard stuff because I like to hate certain people. There's certain people I really like to be angry at. But yeah, the task of love is to assume that the love in the other person, which I take to mean that it's to presuppose their ultimate goodness. Which is, that's a leap of faith, right? Yeah, that is a leap of faith. And then, I mean, really, like somebody just, just don't think it's a monster, but just somebody just, uh, irritates the hell out of you, right? I mean, some of them just like, ah, I just, you know, I, you know right? To just, you know, David Foster Wallace said that you, you probably heard, uh, what is it, all is water or yeah, water? Right. Yeah, yeah, beautiful, beautiful graduation speech. Almost up there with some of Kurt Vonnegut's, whom I love. But this idea of like just thinking about what might be going on in someone else's life. Like a lot of times I've gotten pissed off at people and then found out later what they were going through. And that, so sometimes the, the impediments, so we feel like we're angry, we, we, we're having a hard time presupposing love or caring about somebody who irritates the hell out of us. So at that point, we might want to catch that feeling and say, hey, man, something might, something's going on here. Or maybe, you know, could be something, something I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, like sometimes, yeah, whenever we, someone's annoying, we sometimes justify ourselves to not care about or love that person. It's like, well, they're annoying. They deserve it. Like they don't deserve. Yeah. But I mean, so Kierkegaard would say, I mean, by, by presupposing love in others, Kierkegaard's saying, I, I think maybe this is what he said, maybe tell me if I'm wrong, is that you're recognizing that the other person is spirit or yeah. has the potential That's for right. an authentic yeah. or whatever yeah. self. Let's, let's bring back boxing into this. What do you think boxing can teach us about existential philosophy? Well, it's not what boxing teaches. It's, a, it's what, how boxing can change your life. Okay, so in order to be a, a decent, oh yeah, I guess there's a connection with existentialism. In order to, I, I keep harping on and preaching. In order to be a good person, we've got to be able to deal with emotions like anger and anxiety. But we don't get many workshops on that in everyday life. For most people live in these protected circumstances, right? You know, where they're never... Uh, you know, take some medication for your anxiety, uh, anger sometimes treated as more taboo than sexuality, you know, so, and those are really key emotions. And, uh, and in boxing, there's a, it, it's like a workshop for dealing with those. You can't be and you, George Foreman once told me, cause he's a devout Christian and very men of great faith. I have a lot of respect for him. And, uh, he once told me, man, you know, boxing makes people less violent because you can't be successful at the sport unless you learn to control your emotions. <laughs> you should see people in their first three or four bouts if they ever, when, I mean, they just, it's just, just, it's just fight or flight. But over time, they learn how to control their emotions. But more, more than that, he said, you know, because he was, he came back, his comeback, he, t- he uh, started his comeback after about being out of boxing 13 years to finance his gym he was running. And he said, man, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of kids in that gym that their parents never, their fathers never, never around, but as soon as they start, start boxing, the folks are there. So all of a sudden, some people will get this affirmation that they don't get anywhere else in life. You know, and we all need affirmation sunlight, like most of us, you know, a lot of us are patted on the back, oh, you're smart, you're this, you're that. There's a lot of kids who never get that affirmation. And then they go to the boxing gym and they work at it. And man, they're going, you're cool. You're this, you know, that's really, you're something. We don't, we don't, you know, we don't want just, 
you know, this kind of well respect for each other. We need more than that. There's a, we need intimacy and a, a kind of a kind of closeness that you get that you also get in a boxing gym. It's like a family, man. There's no racism in boxing. I mean, everybody, it's a family. But more than that, you, you get affirmed just by just by getting in the ring. And so that that need for affirmation, I think, is huge and can make people blossom. I was a boxing writer for the Wall Street Journal for many, many years and HBO and everything. And you meet these champions who come from rough circumstances and you see how they've been molded by, how they've been changed by. You know, Mike Tyson's a friend. I mean, how they've been changed by by uh, the love they've gotten from the sport. You know, so self-discipline and affirmation can come out of boxing. And it can, And again, there's not many other players. Even when coaching football, nobody talks about courage anymore. It's all about strategy and all this technique and stuff like that. Boxing, man, it's like stick in there. You got to be courageous. You know, you got to deal with your fears. It's a workshop on that. But it's got to be in a, in a place where, in a gym where people know what they're doing and it's safe. Yeah, we've had a podcast guest on about that idea of affirmation. He says he said, he he made the case people need two things: they need to be noticed and they need to be needed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And a lot of time we just talk about respect. Respect is such a cold idea, right? I mean, we got to respect others. Yeah, we got to respect others, but we need more than respect. We need we need love, man. We need we need togetherness. We need to be sometimes to be told we're good at something. And it also involves telling people when they're screwing up. I mean, I think the uh, one of the things I learned from uh, in boxing from my mentor, uh, a Marine, when I used to head coach at VMI, was to love somebody is to tell them stuff they don't want to hear. And so, you know, the loving thing to do sometimes, because most people don't want to do that because it leads to, you know, it's it's not fun. person might get pissed off. That we need to be able, as as mentors, to tell people they don't things they don't want to hear sometimes, you know, and still let and they, and, they, and you got to have that base of love where they they know you're not rejecting them wholesale, right? Well, Gordon, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work and your book? Well, my book is the Existential Survival Guide. It's published by Harper, and you can just go on Amazon and get it in most bookstores. Uh, people, if people have questions, they can email me, Marino at stoloff.edu. I'm happy to take questions. I'm on Twitter at Gordon Marino. And um, I have a website, but I haven't got it. <laughs> My kids try and help me get it up up and running. And so I'd be happy to take any questions. And it's been a real joy talking with you. Yeah, it's, you did, and I uh, really appreciate your knowledge of Kieran Card, et cetera. So I'm, gonna, I'm giving you a I'm giving you an A for the class. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Well, well, Gordon Marino, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you, my friend. Be well. My guest today was Gordon Marino. He's the author of the book, The Existentialist Survival Guide. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Check out our show notes at aom.is slash existential. We can find links to resources. We can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay reminding you not only listen to the AWIM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.